Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imagined. I am your, I'm Gary Cacciolillo, your host, and today our guest is Aaron Lee. Aaron has been a scholar and spiritual seeker for nearly three decades. He's a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the Gentleman of Jupiter, and an academic societis magica. His writings cover such varied fields as ancient Middle Eastern religion and mythology, Solomonic mysticism, shamanism, neo Platonism, Hermeticism, and Alchemy traditional Wicca and neo-paganism. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Dalma, Angelology, Kabbalah, Enochiana, African religions, hexcraft, hoodoo, folk traditions, psychology, consciousness expansion, cyberspace, and virtual reality, and modern social commentary. He's the author of Secrets of Magical Grimoires and the Angelical Language, Volumes 1 and 2, and the Essential Enochian Grimoire. Thank you for being on my show today, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So, um, what got you interested in magic and occult philosophy? Uh, well, honestly, it goes back a really long way. Um, I guess I've always kind of had a, a lean toward, uh, well, as you said in your introduction, consciousness expansion and and uh, just the mysteries, uh, the behind the scenes of reality, I guess you could say. And uh, so I just, you know, as, as I got older and I started to encounter more, uh, more text, you know, like uh, uh, one of my first books was... Uh, uh, Donald Michael Craig's Modern Magic. Uh, I encountered Golden Dawn material. I encountered Neo Pagan material. So you know, it just it, it kind of led on from my earlier young days when uh, you know when when I encountered religion, and I was raised in a very traditional Southern Christian household. But uh, I always had kind of a uh, a feeling of repulsion toward organized religion and the things I was seeing in the churches. But rather than just go away from anything religious, I ended up just kind of going my own way instead. So I found myself working to to kind of build personal relationships with the spiritual world on my own. Um, so I really think that was the basis of it. You know, I knew there was more there than what I was seeing around me. Um, Traditionally speaking, meaning there was more material out there to find. So I started looking for it. I guess I was about 15 or so when I really started reaching out and trying to find other texts and other other sources of information. And it just kind of grew from there. You know, I, I started learning how the mind works. I started learning how uh, the spiritual versus the physical works and just little by little, uh, you know, progressing forward. Uh, uh, in that fashion, I, I got to put a, an exact term, an exact description on what got me started or, or why right. I went that way. But mm -hmm. it was definitely just kind of an inner calling, really. It was just, I knew there was more and I wanted to find it. So I guess I made that my quest, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I could definitely relate to um, not finding religion being too fulfilling and um, definitely in the occult. It's almost like you have to work your own path and create your own communication rather than relying on somebody telling you what is the truth. Yeah. And honestly, you know, I, I even tried to engage them. You know, I, I was that guy, I was that kid in Sunday school that asked all, all the questions that the Sunday school teachers hated, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, why, why did God and, and who created God? And, you know, and, and they just hated that, you know, I could just tell I was hitting a brick wall there. And it was kind of, even as a kid, it was obvious to me, they didn't have those answers. They had never even asked those questions themselves. So yeah, I had to branch out, just break out on my own. And like I said, I, 
I always had kind of an innate sense of, of uh, fascination with, you know, anything that was a cult or anything that was metaphysical. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I really went in that direction. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's been a lifelong path and uh, it's been very, it's, it's the, you know, it's the best decision I made. <laughs> I can definitely say that. So one of, th- one of the things that I really like about your work is that it's very scholarly and you look really deep into the past of, you know, where this stuff comes from. Um, could you give my listeners like a, a brief history of the occult, of what, how it originated and, and has grown? Uh, that's asking for a brief, uh, <laughs> a brief history of the cult is kind of well, difficult. It's, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a tale as old as mankind really, but um Honestly, in in my, the first book that I published was uh, Secrets of the Magical Grimoires, um, but the first half of that book barely even focuses on the grimoire at all. Um, it's really an exploration of the history of occultism. Review of that, that it you know it goes all the way back to um, the most pre the, the most primitive prehistoric tribal days, you know, uh, where one person in the tribe would be appointed the shaman. And it was usually somebody who had something about them physically or mentally that made them different. Um, you know, the, uh, if you were homosexual or transsexual, if you had schizophrenia, uh, just various things that made you walk between the worlds. You know, people that were prone to have visions, people that were set kind of aside from the norm uh, of the tribe. And their job was to be an ambassador. Uh, between the the tribe itself and the spirits that surrounded them. So, you know, if they needed to have a successful hunt, then they would have the shaman approach the god of the hunt and negotiate, uh, just like we do in politics today. You know, Mm -hmm. you make these offerings and in return, the spirits will do, you know, X, Y, and Z for you and you work out a deal. And it was that way for everything for them, you know, hunting, uh, for rain, for good weather, or, you know, what have you, uh, sickness. Uh, one of the main jobs of the shaman was uh, to be a doctor. That's why they called them medicine men, uh, to uh, not only apply herbal medicines and, and medical techniques, but uh, also to exercise spirits of sickness out of people. And uh, you may have even encountered the old idea of the, the shaman traveling into the underworld and the spirit in order to retrieve this, the, the lost spirits of sick people and bring them back to their bodies. So um, that's really where it all originated. It was, it was about surviving. Um, right. And it was really about uh, establishing diplomatic relations and friendships with the spiritual forces of nature because we're all subject to them. We all, we're all surfing along the, the tides of the world. And in order and, and to be friendly with them and to have them be friendly toward you is a way to survive. You know, if, if uh, you be friendly with the entities that are conducting that disease and you want to have them on your side. So mm-hmm. that really is the origin of, of occultism. And from there, it's just, you know, the shamanic arts. Uh, eventually, you know, the tribes settled down. They started planting crops, the agriculture agricultural era began um one of the one of the oldest forms of religion is ancestor worship uh your family member would pass away but that didn't mean they were gone you would still feed them you would still take care of them and give them a place to live and uh that became an altar and then as we like i said as we settled down in the agricultural era and started building cities 
Um, then we started building temples and the ancestors of the ruling class, the, the people who were the kings and protectors of the tribes, who are now the city-states, their ancestors were elevated to godhood. And so now everyone had to go and pay tribute and give offerings to the ancestors of the rulers. And that was really the foundation of the old, like the Egyptian religion and the Sumerian religion and, and you know, those, those, those oldest, of, uh, uh, oldest foundational uh, religions of Western society. And uh, again, it, it expanded from there um, as far as occultism goes, because that's where religion came from. But uh, in many, many cases, maybe even in most cases, what we call magic and occultism tends to come whenever uh, one religion gets displaced for another. A uh, great example is when Alexander the Great uh, came down and took over Northern Africa took over Egypt. Um, your old Pharaonic Egyptian priests were now they no longer had jobs. They're, they were out of their temples. And now it was, the, it was the Greek religion. And it was a syncretic religion. They just came down and kind of combined the Egyptian and Greek gods. Uh, but the old original priests, they were now at home. And so they didn't have access to their elaborate temples and all of the, all of the, you know, furnishings and the gold altars and all the wonderful stuff that they had. So everything got pared down to the basic bare minimum essentials. And it was, I, I call it the home version of the older religion. And now right. these priests were working as freelancers. So if you needed, you know, love, if you needed money, if you needed uh, healing or protection, then you could go to these old, these now out of work priests who are now working for themselves. And that is what occultism really was. Um, so they were attempting to do the same things they did in the temples, but just now uh, on more of a skeleton crew kind of basis. Um, that happened with the Egyptian religion, which gave us uh, the what they call the Greek magical papyri, which are one of the foundational occult texts in, in, in the West. Um, same thing happened in the... Uh, in medieval Europe with the Grim Wars, most of the Grim Wars were written by lower level priests. Um, and it's not that they were, it's not that they were displaced so much, but there were so many priests. I mean, the church ruled the world and so many families were sending their kids to, you know, become monks and to become uh, clerics. So there was more, there were more priests than there was work for them to do. So again, these people started working at home. And uh, they started putting together their own little miniature versions of what you could do on a more elaborate sense in the temples. And they started freelancing and that gave rise to the Grim Wars. And so this just keeps happening over and over again through history, you know? So it, it's kind of a combination of, of the very old ancient tribal stuff and the indigenous beliefs and folk magic of an area plus official state religion of the time. And those two things combine, and that's where you get your wizards and your, your mages and your occultism. So that's, that's kind of the general formula that usually seems to be followed there. That's a fantastic uh, explanation. I couldn't have said that one better myself, definitely. Um, it's kind of uh, like, you know, just unemployed priests kind of freelancing. Um, the next question is... In many cases, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, like in some of my occult reading, you know, uh, I see a lot of influence on the occult and magic in things like science, math, writing, and alphabets. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we call the scientific arts today, they began with the occult arts. Um, there's a really good book on that subject. Uh, it doesn't go back in, you know, ancient tribal days, but it's called uh, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment uh, by uh, uh, Francis Yates, I believe the name was. Um, it's one of my favorite books. It's been years since I read it, but uh, it, it focuses on how our mo it focuses on the age of enlightenment. So, you know, we were just coming out of the dark ages where the church said, God did it and that's it. And if you say anything other than that, you know, you're, you're going to prison. Um, but then we hit the, the Renaissance and the age of enlightenment where the sciences started to, to arise. But all of those early sciences or scientists were also alchemists and also mages. So, um, you know, you had Agrippa and you had, uh, uh, oh, even, uh, even Isaac Newton was an alchemist, you know. So all these old guys were coming out of these older uh, traditions. And it, it had a lot to do with, you know, uh, like I said, the, the, the ancient shamans were healers. And that's where we get the practice of alchemy from because the, those shamans were learning how to combine plants together and extract the medicines out of them. Uh, you know, when you think of alchemy, you think of turning lead into gold. But that's not really where it came from. That came along later. Uh, the main the main focus of alchemy was the making of medicines. Um, so these guys were already scientists. I mean, we think of science as what came from the Age of Enlightenment, which is the scientific process, and it's a very specific thing. But that was all founded by people who were practicing alchemy and astrology and basically just running experiments on things to, to learn how the universe worked. They wanted to learn all of the secrets behind the physical world, you know? Um, so that's why Newton was studying gravity. I mean, what pulls things to the ground? He wanted to know, you know, he wanted to explore that. Um, and especially in, in, with writing and language, I mean, that goes all the, all the way back uh, to the earliest days. And uh, our earliest alphabets were actually given to humans by the gods. A shaman would go into his ritual, he would take whatever, you know, mushrooms, uh, am, uh, Amanita muscaria, or peyote, or whatever was indigenous to their area. They would use these mind-altering drugs, and they would contact their gods and their spirits, and their, they, those entities would deliver symbols and say, this symbol means this, this symbol means that. And writing was, uh, when it was a new technology, it was a closely guarded occult secret. Only the mages were allowed to know and use it. Um, and then they would teach it to very specific people. Um, you know, the common people were not allowed to write things. They were, they were not allowed to read. Um, so, yeah, the, the, our, the basis of our language came from magic in the first place. It was delivered by the gods and then evolved naturally to what we have today. So, you know, both the scientists, uh, scientists, both the sciences and our languages came out of occult origins. Uh, it's just that since the Age of Enlightenment, uh, since really since the church lost control uh, and everyone wanted to distance themselves and separate themselves from that, then they began to kind of cut off their occult origins. And that's why you can read books. And you, you can read an entire chapter on Isaac Newton in high school, and it will never mention that, he's an that he was an alchemist because they don't, they don't want to focus on that. This isn't all of that, you know, uh, mystical mumbo jumbo. No, this is hard science, you know, and they, they, they want to forget that it actually had a cold origin. Hmm. I didn't know that he was an alchemist. 
He absolutely was. Um, he had a lab and he was experimenting with the elements, you know, finding what, what he could do and what he could make happen. And that's, that's where the, that's where the arts of science came from. I wanted to do too here is um, dispel some of the myths about magic, like, you know, sacrificing virgins and stuff like that. Like, where did that stuff come from? Was that like propaganda that came from the churches? Yeah, for the most part, you know, um, a lot of it was the, the church propaganda because, you know, pagan bad, pagan evil. Don't do anything pagans do because, you know, they're, they're worshiping demons. Uh, I mean, the, the, the official stance of the church was that every pagan god was actually a fallen angel who was being ruled by Satan. If you're worshiping Zeus, if you're worshiping Inanna, then really you're worshiping demons. And... I mean, as happens, you know, you, you demonize your enemies. So, I mean, you'll even see it in the Bible. You know, they talk about uh, tribes, uh, pagan tribes uh, outside of Israel uh, giving their children to Malak. And they talk about thousands of children being fed into the fire in order to appease Malak. But history doesn't show that. There's no evidence that that happened. And if you think about the ancient world, that would have been an incredibly stupid thing to do because infant mortality rate was already high enough. And if you took an, if you took thousands of your children out of your tribe and sacrificed them, then how are you going to have any adults later? Your tribe would literally die out. One plague comes through, one natural catastrophe comes through and your tribe's gone. So why would they have done that? You know, and it goes on like that. I mean, it, and I'm not to say that there was never a human sacrifice. I'm not to say that, you know, there was never an instance where someone would sacrifice their children. I mean, there are some dark aspects to human history. It's, it's, it's just kind of how that works. But um, most of it was way overstated uh, by the church and demonizing their, it's just the same way that they said that the Jewish people were murdering babies. It wasn't even part of their tradition. Um, and then when you get to the modern world, it was, it's more about fiction. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to write a really cool fiction story about, about wizards and stuff, you're going you're gonna to do what's sensational. So our modern fiction, both in both video games, they all draw on these old dark uh, tropes and propaganda in order to make their stories interesting. And unfortunately, uh, people grow up with that and they assume that that's what it is, that that's really what occultism is like. And so, yeah, the myths just keep perpetuating and um, but like I said, in the reality of the situation is it all goes back to ancestor worship, where, you know, if a family member died, they were still a member of the family, and you still took care of them as if they were alive. Um, making sacrifices to the spirit of God. Um, this wasn't some dark, to this day, you'll see people say that, you know, oh, well, the sacrifice of an animal is because, you know, you're feeding these, these dark entities with the pain and terror of the animal that's being killed. And that's utter nonsense. Uh, sacrifice of animals comes from a time when everyone had to slaughter their own meat. If you were going to have a steak, you didn't go to the supermarket and get in a nice clean wrap package. You had to raise the cow. You had to slaughter the cow and prepare the meat and cook it. And that is exactly what they were doing when they were feeding their ancestors. You would slaughter an animal, certain parts of it would go to the spirits, and then certain parts of it would be cooked for the tribe. And that's just how it worked. You, you didn't just 
leave the spirits off to the side to star while you enjoyed the fruits of the hunt that you asked them to help with, you know, just for example, or later on with settled cities, you know, you grow all these wonderful crops and then you were to take the best of the crops and give them to the deities that made sure it rained for you and made sure that the crops were fruitful. And, you know, so it was a give and take thing, but it was just about feeding them. There's nothing. In fact, if you sacrifice an animal, the animal's not even allowed to cry out in pain. Otherwise, it becomes unsuitable. It's now not sacred anymore and cannot be fed to the spirit. So there's literally nothing there about pain or terror on the animal's part. It's supposed to be very well treated. It's supposed to be very humanely uh, prepared, <laughs> uh, slaughtered and prepared for food. Um, but again, the church, pagan bad. So it's perfectly fine for them to enslave and slaughter animals to feed the masses, but you take any part of that animal and give it to the spirits, now you're wrong, now you're bad, you know? So it's, it's, it's really just hypocrisy as far as that goes. If, it, to this day, you know, you have people that will absolutely rant against any kind of sacrifice, um, but they've got no problem going to McDonald's. And I, I guarantee you that if, if you're dealing with like a Centero who's sacrificing a chicken to his spirits, that chicken was treated a million times better than the absolute torture and horror that McDonald's puts its cows through in order to raise them for meat or their chickens in order to get their chicken patties. I mean, they do terrible things to those animals, but somehow that's okay. But feeding your spirits is somehow wrong. You know, again, it, it's, it's hypocrisy. So yeah, there's, that's the basis of it. You know, it's, Things are done in occultism uh, that are kind of that were kind of considered normal at the time that they were that they were instituted, and they were they were just part of daily life, and then they were demonized later on and sensationalized by people writing fiction, and that's just what most people hear, and that's all they know. So they don't they're never really they're never really introduced to the reality of it. Right. There's definitely something there that's kind of beautiful i think about showing gratitude towards our ancestors and like our even our parents and grandparents and and, and great-grandparents i mean that's something that we don't do today you know absolutely and uh you know that's ancestor work especially is one of the most powerful magics there are because uh like i said in the beginning of this uh Magic is all about the relationship that you build with the forces of nature. They, you have to make the blind forces of nature care about what happens to you in order for the magic to work. Uh, and with your ancestors, that's built in. They are coded into your DNA and your family of all the myriad angels and gods and spirits that are in the world, your, your past family members have every reason to want you to succeed and be healthy and be comfortable. And so um, in many traditions, uh, the very first thing you learn is how to set up, uh, they call it, a, a, in the Afro-Caribbean traditions, they call it a bovida, and I, I picked that up, I call it a bovida. That's your mm -hmm. ancestor altar. Setting up your bovida is number one. That's the first thing you do. You learn how to feed them. You learn how to build relationships with them, and they respond and they will take care of you, and they will support you. And uh, so, yeah, and, and, and only then do you move on to the bigger things, you know, being with gods and, and, and those kinds of things. So 
yeah, it's, it's, it's very important to show gratitude and also in, in, in feeding them, you are empowering them, you know, because like, like you said, in our culture, we just put them in a grave or cremate them and forget about them, you know, but in the ancient world, like you go back to Samaria, uh, they believe that if, a, that if your family member died and you just put them off in a corner and forgot about them, then that spirit was just going to roam the land as a starving and disoriented spirit and end up possessing somebody, you know, the uh, possession was basically the same thing as a drowning person. You know, you have a spirit who's lost, hungry, and confused, and they, they see life. They see a person, and they grab a hold of that body in order to, in a, in, a, in a panic, they grab a hold of that body. And, you know, the really negative possessions, it was just mm -hmm. like if you try to save a drowning person, and they'll pull you under and drown you too because they're, they're panicked. And that's what most possessing spirits are doing. They're not evil. They just, they're, they're just in a, they're just, they're just blind and thrashing around and they don't know what to do. Um, so in those cultures, it was very important to take care of your ancestral spirits, give them a home. That is the altar in your house, set a place for them at the table, keep them fed, keep them work and they'll, they'll bring things to the house and they'll, they'll increase your prosperity. So that's something that's sorely, sorely lacking in our Western materialist culture. Absolutely. Um, one of the next questions is uh, the difference between high magic and low magic, or is there even such a thing as low magic? Yeah, to be honest with you, you're not going to find those terms in the old texts. Um, that's really a modern conception, right. and it kind of depends on the author uh, what the, how they define those terms because they're not they're not really based on reality, so they're kind of open to interpretation. Um, some people will just define it between ceremonial magic and folk magic. So if you're dressed up in the robes and you've got the incense and the candles and you're chanting ancient languages and calling these spirits down, you know, these, these angels and gods down from heaven, then that's high magic. But if you are working with your ancestors, you're working with Chthonic, that is underworld entities, what the church would call demons. Um, if you are combining natural elements like you know get dirt from a graveyard get plants from over here get uh, water from this particular source and combine them all together and make this spell then that's often considered low magic um but in reality um all of these systems both exist i mean you know even in the solomonic system that i use you're you're calling angels down and you're also working with the chthonic spirits you're uh, making talismans out of gold and silver, but you're also having to go out and gather the right plants and the right one really isn't there in the practice. But in modern text, and a, a lot of it really comes back from the late 1800s uh, because right there, you know, this is post-age of enlightenment, you know, there, there's already this, this desire to separate science and, and magic. Um, and you also had the rise of masonry and the different Masonic orders. So uh, in the late 1800s, you had uh, the founding of the Golden Dawn, which was founded by Masons. And it is a very Masonic, Masonically structured system. You have a lodge and you have officers and you have, and it's all very, uh, what they call thergic. And thergy is essentially working with the higher forces for the purpose of making yourself better, rectifying your spirit, making yourself stronger and more balanced, uh, becoming what the Golden Dawn called more than human. And so 
that practice, thergia, kind of became defined as high magic. That, that, that this is the good stuff. You know, this is the stuff you want to do. This is religion plus. This is the real religion where you make contact with the higher forces. And then everything else uh, was considered black magic and evil. And you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't cast spells for demons. You shouldn't be working with the lower forces of nature. That's all stuff that only the, again, pagans did that. Pagan back, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, like if you had, if you had brought anything about voodoo to one of the founders of the Golden Dawn, they would have kicked you out of the house. You know, they they wouldn't they didn't, they didn't want to hear about any of that stuff because that was just anathema to them. So yeah, there's a there's a little bit of racial prejudice and bias uh, involved in the distinction between high magic and low magic. But um, even in thergia, they still have thaumaturgia, which is low magic it's witchcraft it's working with the lower forces it's using magic to make things happen uh as opposed to the thergic practice of working magic and just to empower yourself and make yourself uh, better so that that it's kind of a false distinction i mean there are some places where you can kind of make the distinction a little bit um but in reality you if you're going to follow this path you have to do both i mean you can't do the low magic until you do the high magic. You can't do the thaumaturgy and the folk witchcraft until you've done the high magic to empower yourself and establish connections with the higher forces. And then those connections, you know, those, uh, again, it's like ambassadorial. You have created a relationship with this angel and this angel governs certain things in the physical world. And now you can turn to the spirits of the physical world and say, I need this, this, and this. And it's called spiritual authority. The, the spirit will say, well, who are you? You know, you're just, a, you're just another monkey <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that's pestering me for things. Why should I care what you say? And you have to have this angel or this patron deity behind you saying, no, he's mine. And you need to listen to what he's telling you. So they, they really do go hand in hand. Um, how about the difference between the greater key and the lesser key of Solomon? Yeah, that's complete nonsense. They're two entirely different books. Um, I, you know, even when I started, I had encountered the descriptions of these books. You know, one is one. The greater key is about high magic, and it's about angels and 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 you know, working with the higher forces. And then the lesser key is working with demons, and that's the low magic. And one is good, and one is bad. Uh, but it, that's not the reality of those books at all. In fact, the greater key of Solomon is not focused on angels. It is also focused on working with Catholic spirits. Um, so in that sense, they're both the same. And, and likewise, in the uh, lesser key, which is actually five separate books all combined together, um, one of those five books works with Catholic spirits. That's called the Goetia of Solomon. It has the 72 demons in it. Um, the rest of the books all work with angels. There's more angel work in the lesser key than there is in the greater key. So they're really just two different books. Uh, they had no real practical relationship with each other. There are tons of books out there that were called the Key of Solomon, the Key of Rabbi Solomon, the Veritable Key of Solomon, uh, different manuscripts of even the same text that have differences between them. So the Greater Key of Solomon, which is actually just called the Key of Solomon. Greater is something that's been added in the modern world. Um, and then the lesser key, it's actually the little key of Solomon, not lesser, little. 
um, is just a separate book, a holy, and it, it has its own focus and its own rituals. And it's, it, they're, they're not really two halves of the same. I didn't know that. Um, you already touched on this one a little bit. The influence of the Golden Dawn, um, like people like McGregor, Mathers, A.E. Waite, Aleister Crowley, uh, Israel Rigardi. Um, like how, how much of an influence do you think those guys had on not just magic, but I think maybe just in our modern philosophy, even I think they've made a huge contribution. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a little different today than it was even 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. Like I explained, you know, they arose out of that whole Masonic uh, from the lady who doesn't understand how masonry works. Uh, in order to become a mason, you have to join what's called a blue lodge. And they put you through the three degrees. When you're once you're a third degree, uh, that is what makes you a free and accepted Mason. And what that means is that you now you leave the Blue Lodge and there were a plethora of orders that you could join that required you to be a free and accepted Mason. That's why you were free to go join those lodges and you were accepted by them because you had the, the initiation. So, you know, you've heard of, you know, the York Rite and the Scottish Rite and all these different rites, those are mm -hmm. all the orders that you could join as a Master Mason. Uh, so um, it, was, it was Master Masons uh, who were, you know, they were working in these Rosicrucian orders, but because of that decision, I guess you could say, that the, the Western society made to separate itself from occultism, most of those orders did not practice any kind of real occultism, um, especially the Rosicrucian societies. Um, they were very focused on history, very focused on book, book learning and philosophy. The way you actually progressed through their systems was by submitting papers, research papers, to show that you knew what you were talking about. But there was nothing about practical occultism in those groups. So a few of them, in fact, uh, it, was, it was one particular uh, order called the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia. And three men, all three of whom at different times were grand masters of the SRIA. Uh, decided that they wanted more practice off to the side and founded their own, uh, um, I don't want to say Masonic order, but it really was. It was, like I said, it was completely structured after the model of Masonry. But they, they very strongly believed that women had to be admitted as well. You can't do the ladies, you know. Um, the ladies have a lot of power. They were excellent scryers. There were just things they could do that the men sometimes couldn't do. So they knew they had to have the ladies with them. This was also during the heyday of Blavatsky, who I don't really have. And there were other female uh, hermeticists and occultists who were making the rounds at the time. So they just knew from the start that you couldn't do this without the ladies. But that meant that the Golden Dawn, this side group of practical magicians that they wanted to create, uh, could not be masonry because you can't let the women in masonry. So it kind of becomes like the SRIA. Um, there was a lot of book knowledge, book study, passing of tests, that kind of thing. But once you got up a high enough grade, the talismans, the summoning of, of, of spirits and angels, and that was the astral traveling. They were very big on astral travel. Um, so they pretty much created this system and then it just exploded. I mean, the original, the original Golden Dawn went through schisms and breakups. Um, frankly, what 
everything about the original order was killed off by the two world wars. So by the, by the 40s and 50s, you didn't even have any Golden Dawn temples around anymore. But they had done so much, and you had so many people like Aleister Crowley came out of them, and he published a lot of material. Israel Rigardi came from there, and he published a lot of material. Mathers published a lot of material, and he was one of the original three founders. So they disseminated their magical learnings a lot, more than anyone else had done in history. I mean, the Grimoires, yes, there are thousands of those from, from the medieval and renaissance era. But they were much underground texts where in the atrium, uh, they got a lot, a lot more mainstream attention. So they kind of founded the occult revival of the, the late 19th and early 20th century. And you move forward to the 20s, the 1920s. Uh, you had uh, Margaret Murray, and she was publishing about uh, these old witch cults that, that she believed at the time existed in Europe. Um, and then you had people coming into her camp. You know, people would read her books on, on ancient witchcraft and, hey, we want to do this, you know. And so they started founding groups. And those groups were the original neo-pagans. Uh, this is before Wicca, but they were called the old religion. They believed they were practicing what these ancient witches that Mark Murray was describing had done. But as far as material for that goes, there wasn't much. Um, uh, you've probably heard uh, a million times people say, well, you know, I come from a family tradition. My, my, my family's been witches for, you know, generations and hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, but what those people were bringing were their families, uh, what was called receipt books. Uh, they were like family grimoires. They had uh, uh, cleaning tips and beauty tips, but they also had astrology in them and spells and protection spells and things to make the crops grow and things to make the cattle fertile. So essentially it was old shaman, shamanism and folk magic that had been preserved in these families. Uh, they by and large considered themselves Christian, but they just never let go of the old mysteries. They just kept handing down those mysteries. So a lot of people brought that material into the old religion uh, of, of the early uh, 20th century. Um, but that aside, uh, there still wasn't much in the way of structure. And what was available to them were the were the documents about the Golden Dawn. Uh, if you ever read Drawing Down the Moon by Margot Adler, she talks about that. She said there was, a, there was a point where you didn't call yourself a witch unless you had Rigardi's volumes of the Golden Dawn on your shelf. So that, that provided the structure because like I said, going back to it being a very Masonic system, that provided them things like a grade structure, things like knowledge lectures that you had to learn in order to pass tests to get up to the next phase of the, of the initiatory system. So it gave them a lot of the structure. Um, and so the Golden Dawn really had a massive, massive influence on how that progressed. And of course, that's who Gerald Gardner joined. He joined the New Forest Coven of the old religion. And he was also studying Golden Dawn. And even more so, he was studying Thelema, uh, which was Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley left the Golden Dawn and just kind of made his own version of the Golden Dawn system. It still had grades, and it still had the same types of rituals, and it was still the same basic magical philosophy that the Golden Dawn had taught. Uh, but he just added his own spin to it and his own material. So Gardner was very into that, and he simply brought that into the old religion, and he created what we call today Wicca. So your Gardnerian Wicca, your Alexandrian Wicca, it's, it's a very ceremonial kind of system. It's a very uh, uh, 
um, Golden Dawn style occultism, but with all of this witchcraft and indigenous stuff brought in as well. So instead of looking up to the highest God, the way the Golden Dawners did, they were more interested in worshiping the earth and interacting with the earth spirits. And um, both Gardner and Alexander's brought a lot in from the grimoires too. So, you know, like in Wicca, you have the white and black hilted knives, and that came from the Key of Solomon. They have consecrations for holy water, which were, are almost verbatim quoted out of the Key of Solomon. So, so yeah, you see how all these different influences converged into the occult revival of the early 20th century. So they had just an absolutely massive impact. Then you come closer to our day, and um, even though the original order was all but gone, you still had, Al uh, not Alistair, he was gone. Uh, you still had Israel Regardi. And uh, at the time, they thought he was the last living. Even though we had the two world wars pretty much disrupt the whole tradition, there was still one temple in New Zealand that was operating secretly. And they operated secretly until, I believe, the very late 70s. Uh, but none, none of that was known. So as far as anyone in, you know, in the, the, the mainstream world knew, Israel Regardi was the last living adept of the old Golden Dawn uh, system. And uh, he met with a man named Chick Cicero, who was working on founding a new modern Golden Dawn order. And he uh, consecrated the uh, Vault of the Adepti that, uh, that Cicero had built, uh, initiated people in that vault, and passed on the initiatory lineage, and it revived the tradition. Uh, the Ciceros have gone on to publish an absolute library of books about Golden Dawn history, philosophy, and practice. I mean, if you're practicing Golden Dawn today, you're pretty much getting mo most of it from the Cicero's books. Um, and so they too had a very massive impact on modern occultism. Um, so yeah, they, they, they had, that's kind of the progression of their influence. Uh, now, the reason I said it's a little different today is because one thing that the Golden Dawn did with occultism um, and one of the biggest influences they had is what I call the psychological model of magic. Um, because they were mainly focused on what we called thergy earlier, they were focused on doing rituals and initiations that calls down the light and makes you bigger, better, stronger, and more than human. Um, so a lot of it is focused inward. A lot of it is focused on you, your relationship with the divine. Uh, so they, and, 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 also remember when the Golden Dawn was founded in the, the, the 1800s, psychology itself was a new thing. And they really took it and ran with it. And this, this went right up to Rigardi because Rigardi himself is probably more, he and Crowley uh, together are probably more responsible for the propagation of the psychological model of magic. And that's, that's the model that says magic isn't real. It's just a form of psychology. The angels and the spirits are really just names and faces that we hang on our own psychological processes and complexes and, and neuro, you know, demons are just neuroses. And so all of magic is really just a way of affecting your mind. And, you know, magic doesn't manifest things in the real world. It just changes your perception of the real world. And that really had a massive influence on neo-paganism and Wicca. Um, you really see it in its culmination today in chaos magic, where, you know, anything goes as long as it's coming out of your own mind, as long as it works for you, as long as it helps shift your perceptions and your reality tunnels and all that. Um, but what's happening today 
is that people are now kind of going back. Um, we know more about the old Grim Wars now than we did in, at any point in history before. More of them have been published now in the mainstream than have ever been published before. And we've really been deciphering these old texts. In fact, my first book, Secrets of the Magical Grim Wars, its subtitle is The Classical Text of Magic Deciphered. And we're going back to what I call the old magic, which is before magic was seen as psychology, when the angels and the gods and the spirits were viewed as very real, objective beings. And magic itself was the art and the system of protocols that you had to follow in order to contact these beings and make them care about you and get them to work with and for. So psychological model of magic, that doesn't mean that psychology is not important to magic. I mean, your mind and your, uh, your reality tunnels and your perceptions are absolutely part of it. But we're kind of going away from this idea that it's really just all in your head. You know, so there's a lot more, um, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot being done these days, for instance, to kind of undo a lot of what Crowley did to occultism and try to, and, you know, that, you know, like, like we look at him, he's very famous for using the old grimoires, but once you really get into his story and see what he was doing with those grimoires, he wasn't really using the grimoires the way their authors had intended them. He was taking material out of the grimoires and applying it to his own uh, post-Golden Dawn Thelemic system. So we're going back and looking at the original texts in their original context, how the authors actually intended them to be used, which is much more shamanic and much more visceral. So there's a little movement away from that psychological model now. And a lot of the influence that the Golden Dawn and Thelema have had is waning a little bit now. I mean, not entirely, but it's not the only game in town anymore. And there's been huge influxes of information from like the Afro-Caribbean traditions like Santeria, which is really called Lukumi, by the way. So from Lukumi, from Palo Mayombe, from Kendomble, from Kimbanda, those are ancient shamanic systems that work with real spirits to make real things happen in the real world. And we're really learning a lot about how that kind of magic works. And that's really what the grimoires are. They are that, they are a Western version of what those Afro-Caribbean traditions do. So, and we're expanding beyond just the it's all in your head viewpoint. So, I hope I didn't ramble too long on that, but that's kind of where we stand as these traditions are progressing these days. You know, um, I don't know which question to ask next. I kind of have something else that I'm thinking about than what I have written down. I I talk to tons of um, mediums and psychics and stuff like that for this show and you mentioned that was interesting no yeah and you mentioned that um you know more people are going Uh back to this um way of talking to the spirits directly rather than looking at it like psychology um do you think that maybe over time like the veil between us and the spirits is becoming thinner and people are just becoming more aware that they're actually really spirits and not a manifestation of the mind well, on the second part of that, yes. I, I, I think the part about the veil thinning may be up to, open to interpretation. I don't know if the veil, so to speak, has really changed any, but I think people are now aware it's there. I mean, uh, you know, rather than just believing it's all in your head, now people are actually looking, well, how do I make contact with these real spirits? What are the protocols to, 
to learn to work with them and get them to, to work with us. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, there's actually people, there's more people today that are actually looking to part that veil than there were before. So in that sense, you could say it's thinning. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's the, the structure of the universe, physically and magically speaking, I think it's pretty much the same as it was. Um, but there is a lot of change going on and not just magically, but you can see, you know, politically, uh, technologically, I mean, everything right now is in flux. So uh, generally speaking, the world right now is in revolution. Things are changing and they have been, you know, since the early 1900s, since the industrial revolution, they have been. So there's a lot more focus going on. And also too, the more dangerous the world gets, I find the more people are willing to look into a real magic. I don't want to say the Golden Dawn and the Lima are not real, but what I'm saying is that they're, they're, they're so focused on the self and the site, their house running, that will keep the lights on, that will keep sickness out of their house, that will, you know. So the more dangerous the world gets, the more people get into practical you know, magic. And so I think that's what you're seeing to a large extent. Um, in a lot of the occult stuff that I've read, there's a lot of stuff that has to deal with correspondences between planets, numbers, colors, symbols, um, different sounds. How are those correspondences created or where did they come from? It's in exactly the same way that I told you that uh, language was created. The, the alphabets were first created. The shamans would go into their trances and speak to the spirits, and the spirits would tell them, this is this, this is this. And in the sense of those correspondences that, that we use, you know, if, and, and this is even true today, you know, when I set up an altar to an angel, um, yes, I can get the correspondences, and you have to start with what's in the books. You know, you know that this blue is Jupiter, you know that green is Venus, you know that yellow or gold is the sun. So if you're going to work with, say, a solar entity, you're going to make that altar yellow and you're going to put a lot of gold on it and you're going to have plants associated with it that are solar plants. So this is all the book stuff. But once you get it going and you make contact with that solar entity, uh, that solar entity then takes over and says, okay, I want this on my altar. I want these things to be, I want you to perform these rituals and say these invocations, uh, read these Psalms. They dictate what needs to be done in order to make that connection stronger and make them more powerful for you. And that's exactly how the, everything you're learning out of the books came from someone in the ancient world who did that same thing. You know, the ancient shaman wanted to uh, build a relationship with the God of the hunt, for example. And so he contacted the God of the hunt and said, now what do I do? And the, the God would tell him, you need to, you need to get, you know, this animal skin within these antlers and you need to put them on and you need to perform these rituals in this way and that will make you successful in your hunt. And so then that shaman did that. It became a tradition which he passed down to his apprentices and passed down to their apprentices and on throughout history. So all those correspondences, every spell you read in an old grimoire, you know, spells for invisibility, spells to win at court, spells to bring love, all this stuff. Every bit of that was originally received by someone who asked one of the spirits, how do I X, Y, or Z? And the spirit would say, here's what you need to do. And then there's where the traditions are founded. And that's also how the traditions grow and continue to be living today. Because like I said, 
I'm still doing the same thing today. And we're all still doing that same thing when we're working the old magic is you put together what you can get out of the books, but then you have to ask the spirits now, now what do I do? And the spirits will give you more powerful spells than what you're going to get in any book. They're going to tell you how to open their altars. They're going to teach you the protocols that you need to follow. And when you do that and you, you, and I don't want to say leave the books behind because the books will always be important. And a lot of times the spirits will say, well, if you want to know to do this, this, and this, go get this book. And it'll, and it, those instructions are already in the book. So the books are always going to be important, but you have to leave the reliance on the books behind and realize that the spirits are now your teachers and they will tell you what colors, what incenses to burn, what candles to burn, what plants to use, what metals to use. And that's how traditions grow and build and continue to be living traditions rather than dead traditions recorded in books that just gather dusts. <laughs> so that maybe it was like, like um, how like John Kelly and like they started out with like the foundation of magic that they got from books. And then from there, they kind of developed like the Enochian stuff that you've written about. Yeah. John D and Edward Kelly. That's exactly how they work. Um, they started with the grimoires. You know, John D had Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy. He had the greater and lesser keys of Solomon. He had uh, the heptameron and the arbitel, all these old grimoires. And he put together his initial rituals based on the, what he learned in there in order to make first contact. And then as soon as he made that contact, the angel said, okay, thanks for calling us. Now here's how we want you to do it. So they said, you see this seal of the true God that's in, that's in Liber Geratus? Well, we want you to use that symbol, but we want you to change it and put these names on it instead. And you see this holy table, this scrying device over here? Well, use that, but we have a design for you that we want you to put on it instead of what's in the book. And everything about the Anakian system was created that way. You know, it, they used what was in the books to make first contact but then they let the angels take over and the angels taught them how to make it all better and more powerful. And what was, what resulted is one of the most powerful angel magic systems known in the West today. So yeah, that's how they worked. That's how all of the old, uh, the old wizards and the old world and the old magic worked. And that's how a lot of us are starting to work today. Um, one of the things that you've already sort of talked about, but you know, it's definitely becoming sort of, um, a trend now is people using things like ayahuasca and DMT. Yeah, that's, that's, that goes all the way back to the shamanic practices, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, the, the various mind altering uh, plants and substances that they would find in nature. And of course there were angel, there were angels and spirits that were set over those plants. So they would, they would use those plants in order to contact those spirits and once they had made that contact, then the spirits would teach them uh, everything they needed to know from there. So, and, and there's, been, there's a lot that, I'd say since the 60s, there's been a lot of that coming back um, in, by, by using these mind-altering substances. And it's very different from recreational use of those substances, or even if you're trying to use them shamanically, but doing it blindly, you know, like just, you know, popping a tab of acid and going for it, you know, that's not really how it worked. There were specific entities you had to contact there were protocols there were correspondences there were ways to go about it so that you would actually open the gate to that specific entity uh, whoever governs that, 
that particular plant uh, and calling them through and work and getting visions from them and getting information from them. And that's, that's how a lot of these traditions were built. I mean, even when, even the old shamans that would go into the underworld uh, to find lost souls or to communicate with the Chthonic entities, they would, they would pop Amanita muscaria or they would take peyote um, and they would, that's how they would generate the visions uh, of, of doing this travel into the spirit realm. So uh, since, uh, you know, since, since the 60s, since Tim Leary, uh, since the work of Robert Anton Wilson and, uh, you know, the Terrence McKenna and this very underground kind of uh, uh, counterculture thing that came out of the, that came out of the 60s and 70s, um, there's been, there are books you can find uh, that really explore that aspect of history. Um, by the time you get into like the Renaissance era, uh, you already had kind of a drug war going on uh, back then. It wasn't because drugs are killing our kids back then. It was more because uh, those drugs are what shamans used and their magic. And again, pagan bad, you can't do anything pagans do. So that's why you'll read the grimoires and there's no mention of the drugs or in Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy, he does mention them, but he downplays it as much as he can uh, because that was pagan. That was, you weren't supposed to do that. And then, of course, today, you, we've had the drug war that raged and, and destroyed a lot of families and stuff through the 80s and the 90s. And uh, you'll still have people who are very afraid of any kind of mind-altering substance when it comes to magic, that you shouldn't do that because that's not real magic, when in fact, yes, it is. It, it's absolutely how the, the old magic worked in many cases, um, especially when you're doing visionary work or traveling into the spirit realm, those mind-altering substances were, uh, were definitely used. Uh, there's a lot more research into that area these days. Uh, you can look for uh, books by uh, Chris Bennett, and he's published a lot of really good stuff. Uh, he wrote one called Liber 420, which is where he uh, explores the use of cannabis through Western occultism. And I, I even wrote the preface for that book. So uh, I can tell you that's a really good book. And most of Chris Bennett's stuff is really good. So there's a lot of re-exploring and revisiting of that material going on. I'll have to check that one out. Um, is sex magic a real thing? Yeah, it's a real thing. Absolutely. It is. It, you know, there are, there are entire traditions that are centered around. A lot of it's drawn from uh, Eastern practices like Tantra. Um, but uh, yeah, it is, it is a real thing. It's not all that prevalent. You don't really run into a lot of people that are doing it, but there are people out there that practice it or at least study it. And yeah, it's, it's a thing. And my last question is, remember, I kind of laughed when I asked you this one, you know, I asked you if you listened to electric wizard <laughs> and, um, but you know, music <laughs> has, um, I mean, the, the occult has had such a huge influence on music. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I think it has a lot to do with uh, counterculture. Um, you go all the way back to the 20s and listen to jazz music. There's a lot of jazz music that makes reference to voodoo and hoodoo. You know, uh, you, know you, you hear the songs about going down to the crossroads to talk to the man in black and selling your soul in order to become the best guitar player, you know, in, in the world. And, um, that's a trope. They get, even saw that in the movie, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You know, the, one of the mm -hmm. characters had done that. And, and that's how it became famous. So, and, and going into like the 60s, uh, the 70s and the 80s, 
there was a lot of influence. I mean, a lot of people were reading Aleister Crowley. Uh, and, and when I say, I mean, there are a lot of artists, musicians that were reading Aleister Crowley, that were reading uh, books by Robert Anton Wilson and Tim Leary and Terrence McKenna, because music is, has always been a counterculture thing. You know, it's always been, you know, musicians are usually your outsiders. And so they are naturally drawn toward counterculture and outsider things. And occultism is one of those. So, you you know, there's, there's a lot of influence. And then plus, it, on top of that, music is a very spiritual thing. So if you're dealing with a whole bunch of underground counterculture musicians, uh, they're going to be interested in counterculture underground spirituality. And, and, it's not, and it goes even back further. Um, in that book I mentioned, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment, uh, it, it, it talks about the spread of the Rosicrucian philosophy in the Renaissance era. And the people who were spreading that were actors. Uh, this is back in the days when troops of actors would go from town to town putting on plays. And they were the same thing. They were, they were outsiders. They were counterculture people. They were like hippies. And they were interested in that kind of uh, spirituality. They were interested in the mysteries and the, the stuff you couldn't learn by sitting in a pew in church and giving those people your money. Um, they, were, they wanted to learn things that would empower them and expand their minds and their consciousness. So, you know, that stuff wasn't new to, in, new in the 60s by any means, um, but it continued. It continued all, it's continued throughout Western culture, throughout Western history. And so when you, when you hear these songs, you know, Aleister Crowley had a massive impact. You'll hear songs, you know, especially like metal songs and rock songs that'll mention Aleister Crowley. Um, even um, more recently, I'm kind of old and out of touch these days, but one of the last bands uh, that I really got into was uh, Mudvayne, uh, I guess, back in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that I personally uh, know the drummer of Mudvayne. And he is a big time, you know, big time into occultism. And you'll see in their album, on, if, you, if you get their albums in the old days when you would buy these things physically, uh, you look on their <laughs> album covers or in the inserts in the CD. <laughs> And uh, see, I told you I was old and out of touch. But if you looked at the material they provided with their albums, you'll see images of the Tree of Life. Uh, one of their albums, even in the acknowledgments, thanks is uh, Chicken Tabitha Cicero. Uh, so they are they were very big into occult symbolism and this alternative spirituality, which then goes into their alternative uh, counterculture music. So yeah, I think as long as you have the counterculture that counterculture is always going to be interested in the alternative religious practices. So whether they're into Buddhism, Tantra, yoga, whether they're into Aleister Crowley or the Golden Dawn, whether they're into the Keys of Solomon, or even if they're into Santeria and the Afro-Caribbean traditions or Strega from Italy, or, you know, they're, 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 they're looking the same way I was. They're, they're not interested in sitting in church and being droned at. They want to go find the mysteries. And so that is going to influence their music because their music is part of that spirituality. And the symbolism that goes into occultism is going to be coded into their music. Yeah. I, one of the things that got me interested in occultism was actually music, like, you know, like the old Sabbath and Ozzy kind of stuff. You know, it made me curious enough to go out and, buy books and actually read up on the topic a little bit when I was a kid. Yep. And that's, that's really their intention is 
number one, to make their music have real impact. That's why that stuff is coded in there. Um, you know, you can listen to these songs and they can change you in very specific ways um, that, that are good, you know. And then, of course, there's music you can listen to that will change you in, in negative ways. But their, their idea is to encode these spiritual experiences that they've had uh, into their music. Like uh, David Bowie, for example, was a Thelemite. Um, and by that, I don't mean that he had joined any Thelemic order. But when he was practicing and when he was making his music, um, Thelema was pretty much the only game in town. I mean, uh, the Ciceros hadn't published all of their hundreds of books yet. Um, the old order was gone. And, and uh, other than neo-paganism, Thelema was pretty much the only thing you were going to find books on. So he was, he was studying Eastern systems and he was studying Thelema and he was, um, you even heard about various actors and musicians being involved in Satanism, you know, mm -hmm. which sounds very shocking and negative, but it really wasn't to them at the time because uh, Satanism is not about worshiping the devil. In fact, they very specifically do not believe in the devil. They are atheists. But what they see in magic uh, is, again, that psychological system. They see how these, they can use these symbols and rituals to manipulate them, their own mind and their, their selves. So some of these early guys uh, got involved in Satanism, at least briefly. Um, so yeah, they're, they're always seeking out uh, counterculture and they're always seeking to code that into the music. Um, I give classes online. Uh, they're pre-recorded classes that you can purchase from my website. And every single class opens with a song. And uh, in most cases, it's specifically a song that was important to me in my own journey. Uh, like, for instance, I give classes on the Book of Abramelin, which is a very involved tradition about connecting with your holy guardian angel. And every single class starts with a song that impacted me as I was performing the Rite of Abramelin. You know, because these guys are saying the same things that the Book of Abramelin was saying, but they were setting it to music. And... In many cases, my guardian angel and my other uh, patron spirits and guardians and protectors, they would use that music. You know, a specific song would come on when I needed to hear it. And suddenly the lyrics would make more sense to me than they had ever made. You know, uh, a great example, uh, just, just for one example, mm -hmm. is uh, uh, Solisbury Hill, uh, which everyone says was the, the, the story of this musician breaking away from his group in order to go take a solo career, Peter Gabriel, um, to make his own solo career. But when you really listen to it, he's talking about being up on a hill alone and this eagle comes to him and uh, the eagle talks to him and tells him, grab your things, I've come to take you home. And what he's describing, he's, using, he's kind of using Native American symbolism by referring to it as an eagle. But what he's talking about is your guardian angel. He, he went out just like the hermits of old did to a, to a lonely place where he wouldn't be influenced by other people and had a vision. And this entity came to him and said, I'm going to take you home. And every song that I share in my classes in that way has some kind of message like that, that relates to whatever I'm teaching magically. So they're inextricably linked and they're very powerful, sometimes more powerful than what you'll read in a book about in an occult book. You'll, you'll be moved by the songs and you'll be, motivated by the music uh first and then that music can often guide you as you as you progress forward that's great i wasn't expecting that answer 
I'm so glad I asked that question. <laughs> um, so it's gonna, I'm going to wrap this up. Um, can you just tell my listeners, um, you know, what books you have out and about your website and your classes and all that? Absolutely. Uh, I have several books out. Uh, I've already mentioned Secrets of the Magical Grimoires, uh, which is a complete overview. It, it, like I said, it starts with the history of magic. It shows how it developed in Western culture. Uh, but then the second half of the book is practical instructions. Step one, step two, this is how you do this thing. And it, of course, draws from the grimoires, the key of Solomon and, and those. Um, also, because I study and practice the Enochian system of magic that John Dee and Edward Kelly recorded, uh, the two books, The Angelical Language, is a complete study of the, lang- the, the, the angel language that, 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 that the, the entities gave to Dee and Kelly. Um, and then that's followed with the essential Enochian grimoire, which gives you all the rituals to use with it. Um, I've got a book, uh, called ritual offerings, which is all about how all the protocols to follow in order to contact and get spirits to work with you and feed them and empower them. So that's a very important book. Um, and I, have got a few others, uh, uh, more accessible though. Um, if you go online and you go to docsolomons.com, uh, then I have not only products that you can buy, holy waters, incense. Uh, you can have us make custom talismans. Uh, we perform services. We do candle lighting rituals. We do tarot readings. Um, but of mo- to me, the, the, the real pinnacle of all of that is the classes that I offer. Uh, I offer a beginner's class on grimoire magic that teaches you step-by-step how to do everything. Um, and then I'm right now working on an advanced class that'll take things to the next level with uh, summoning angels and summoning spirits and that kind of thing. Um, and I also have the, uh, the one I mentioned, the class on the book of Abramelin, which is about how to call down your guardian angel and bond it to your head. So you have a head spirit and a patron to teach you and empower you uh, in the rest of your magic. Um, we also have a tarot course available there and more and more classes are going to be coming soon. Uh, so yeah, docsolomons.com is where you'll find all of that material. All right. You'll have to send that to me in Messenger, and I'll put a link to it when I post the podcast. Oh, absolutely. And um, I just want to thank you for being on my show. I, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I hope you did too. I sure did. I'm glad you found it interesting. I hope it didn't ramble too much. <laughs> no, not at all. I, you gave very detailed and precise answers that make sense. And I think when my listeners hear this, they're going to be very surprised that what magic really is and how it has influenced, you know, human evolution in general all the way up till now. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for being on my show. I'm going to read a couple of things here for my listeners. Uh, to my listeners, please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier to find. Also, tell your friends, your family, and even the weird uncle, which I definitely am that weird uncle. Um, if anybody wants to be a guest on this show, email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com also i'm on facebook instagram youtube twitter and every other imaginable platform and remember everything that is 
was first imagined. See you next week, and thank you for listening.